Public employee unions are a fact of life at the federal and most state levels of government and in many large cities. President John Kennedy famously authorized them at the federal level back in the early 1960s. My next guest argues that public unions not only promote inefficiency, they're also unconstitutional. Philip Howard is an attorney and founder and chairman of Common Good. He joins me now. Mr. Howard, good to have you on. Nice to be with you. And you have a new book out called Not Accountable, Rethinking the Constitutionality of Public Employee Unions. And you seem to be making two arguments. One, that they don't do the public very good or operational efficiency and accountability of the government very good. And at the same time, they're not even constitutional. Let's start with the first argument, that they impede public efficiency and so forth. Right. So what's happened over the last 50 years since collective bargaining was authorized is that basic management tools have virtually disappeared. There's near zero accountability at all levels of government in this country. And, not, you know, over 99 percent of federal employees get a fully successful rating. Why is that? Because if you say one negative thing and put it in the file for the supervisor, you've got a good chance of having to go through a grievance proceeding and nobody has the time to do that. So there's near zero accountability and government has become substantially unmanageable. Basic decisions about who's best doing what job can't be made. There are strict rules on seniority and other kinds of restrictions on how management works. And so the result is the government is the public is getting, well, lots of bad things. The public gets a fraction of what it pays for. Good public employees find themselves sometimes in organizations which are dispirited. Paul Volcker wrote about this because it's unmanageable and there's no mutual trust and everybody's pulling their share and that sort of thing. And one irony that you point out pretty early in the book is that some of the establishment of public unions, this is mainly in the municipal level, was precisely to get rid of the patronage type of system, which was never efficient or fair, in favor of a professional civil service. You cite Mayor Wagner of New York, although Tammany Hall was kind of dead 30 years before that. Yeah, you know, the the history of this is ironic. You know, we wanted to get rid of patronage, which we started doing back in the late 19th century in the progressive era. That was a good thing. But it gave rise to a natural organizing group of semi-permanent public employees who then kind of naturally wanted sort of more power. And over the years, the leaders of these public employee associations wanted to get similar powers as trade unions. And FDR resisted it and LaGuardia resisted it. But finally, during the rights revolution of the 60s, they went along and gave them these powers. And they didn't really understand that there's a substantial difference between private bargaining and trade union bargaining both in the dynamics of the negotiation and also in what you can bargain for. And so the result is that controls that would never be seen in a private union contract, you could never get rid of accountability in a car factory because the assembly line wouldn't work, you know, and the other workers wouldn't do it. But that's just like it's a state of nature in the public sector. And what about the differences between federal and all other public unions because federal cannot bargain for pay and benefits. How has that changed the dynamic between the two basic categories? Well, I think it does change the dynamic somewhat. I mean, the state and local unions have negotiated for really unaffordable long-term pensions and free health care benefits and such. That is not such a problem in the federal sectors. So I would say it's less of a problem in the federal government 
but one of the big supporters for overhauling civil service is the Senior Executives Association because they feel that they don't have adequate you know, managerial control. And so, you know, what I'm calling for in the federal government, I'm talking to some presidential candidates about this, it's really a remaking of the civil service system back to what it was originally intended to be, which is a merit system with speed bumps to protect against arbitrary dismissal or somebody like Donald Trump coming in and, you know, wielding an ax. You know, we don't want that, but not a trial-like hearing every time somebody puts a negative comment in an employee file. We're speaking with attorney Philip Howard. He's author of Not Accountable, just out from Rodin Books, and about the question of constitutionality. Your thesis is that because they are so entrenched, federal unions cannot be dislodged except by a constitutional challenge. I mean, that's the practical effect, but the, you know, no one had really ever analyzed public employee unions through the lens of constitutional governance. So democracy is nothing but a process of accountability. You elect someone, particularly you elect an executive like a president, a mayor, a governor, and their job is to manage the operating machinery of government. And if they do a bad job, the voters elect someone else or elect a new party. And what's happened is that public union agreements have effectively taken away their managerial powers. So you elect people who are figureheads. And so democracy can't work. And so I argue in the book that these collective bargaining agreements and controls should be unconstitutional because democracy can only work when the mayor actually has the authority to reorganize a failing school, for example. And how does that come about? In other words, you need a case to render something unconstitutional. Yeah. So we're working with several public interest law firms in a number of states about organizing challenges under what's called the Guarantee Clause of the Constitution, which basically says the U.S. Constitution guarantees a Republican form of government which means that the people who get elected have to retain their authority to run government. They can't give it to any private group, and there's a lot of stuff by Madison. But in the federal government, it could actually be overhauled, I believe, by executive order by the president, who would simply say, I believe that parts of the Civil Service Reform Act of 1978 that require collective bargaining and require all these detailed provisions for any discipline or termination are unconstitutional under Article 2, which gives me executive power, and there's a lot of authority in the Supreme Court on that. And therefore, by executive order, I'm creating a new civil service system that makes it easier to fire, much more easy to get rid of non-performing employees, and I'll have speed bumps to make sure that people are not treated arbitrarily or for partisan reasons. But this is going to be what I'm proposing. And then, of course, his executive order would be challenged by the the unions, among other things. And so it would go to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court would decide. I mean, in some ways, isn't that what the Trump administration tried to do? You know, they did this Schedule F. I believe they had the authority to do Schedule F, which basically created at-will employment for 3,000 or so top federal officials. But I didn't like it because I thought it should have speed bumps to guard against partisan or arbitrary dismissals. So I thought there needed to be some independent body that is there to make sure that people weren't treated unfairly, because I think ultimately what you want are organizations that are trustworthy. You want people who work in the government to feel that they'll be treated fairly, then they'll work hard and stuff. And so just as having no accountability removes trust, So, too, having arbitrary dismissals removes trust. 
you, you need something in the middle. Right. It's always incumbent on management to be well qualified and operate in a correct way. Yeah, that's right. So everybody should be accountable. And again, there should be protection so that people don't fear that they'll show up one day and all of a sudden they'll be out on the streets. So in my world, this new executive order with a new civil service system would include many of the reforms that people like the Partnership for Public Service have been advocating, but it would do it by executive order. All right. And what's the reaction to the book so far? I mean, I've written broadly about, not about unions, but about the functioning of government and, you know, over-bureaucratization and all that kind of stuff. My my book, The Death of Common Sense, was a big bestseller, and I worked with Clinton and Gore back in the 90s. But I've had more reviews on this book than any book I've ever written. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But the liberal media hasn't criticized it. It's just ignored it. So, so the New York Times has basically said nothing. And I'm just now starting to get commentary, um, long article in Government Executive Magazine by Don Kettle just came out, you know, talking about how this is likely to be one of the battle lines in the 2024 election, which is, you know, how do we manage government? So I think it is an issue whose time has come. Attorney Philip Howard is author of Not Accountable. It is just out from Rodin Books. Thanks so much for joining me. Nice to be with you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from 
formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. And she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have 
you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. (laughs) So that's sort of the way, that's sort of the way that I kind of see all of that. That's brilliant. And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.